he sat me down, he was there, what are you doing on Monday morning? And I was like, what are you on about? What am I doing on Monday morning? Like, who cares about Monday morning? It's all about Saturday. And he was, in a roundabout way, he was making the point that I was too far in with nothing else going on outside my life by rugby. Hello again and welcome to Insights. In this episode, former rugby international Donegal Callaghan talks about what drove him to be the very best player on the pitch, the contrasting styles of coaches Eddie O'Sullivan, Declan Kidney and Joe Schmidt, and why this current Irish team could go all the way in the World Cup. Donegal Callaghan, to go back to the start, um, great expectations of this Irish rugby, uh, this current team on the back of the uh, the Grand Slam uh, in the Six Nations and then previously beating the All Blacks, winning the Autumn Internationals. How do we restrain ourselves from thinking that you know the World Cup is coming our way? Yeah, it is something I'm wrestling with myself. I don't know. I think I'm probably, uh, not trying to sound disrespectful, but a bit like yourself, coming from a, a sporting era where we were always the underdogs and we needed that chip on our shoulder to be able to perform. Um, whereas this current group of players and led by this management team aren't like that. They know they're good. They know they can go out and outperform teams and they do it. And I think there's been a shift in mindset, starting with probably the rugby team, that uh, they, they, they fall back on their preparation. So the amount of work that they've put in, and I'm not only chatting about the Six Nations, but what we're seeing now is the athletes that are arriving are ready to go. They're, like There is no uh, time wasted in upskilling them in terms of what's demanded of them, both physically and mentally. And I think um, Irish rugby is probably reaping the rewards of brilliant structures. Has it uh, become increasingly a question of, look, it's the squad more than the 15 on the pitch? Yeah, it absolutely has. And even trying to get that boy in though, Sean, because that's quite a hard thing to get. Um, an awful lot of time, you've 15 players that are really happy because they're starting. The kind of 16 to 23 aren't a little bit put out. And then you've a squad of maybe 42 that are you know, they're gutted, they're not playing. That's not happening at the moment. Everyone knows their part in terms of their involvement and how it leads to a greater good for the squad. But that's where I've been most impressed by the management. Like Andy Farrell has done something right, that he can have some players that have played no part, but they still feel like they want to give back to the squad. And if we go back to the Grand Slam week, like... The, the perfect example of it was Gary Ringrose and like he played against Scotland and picked up a really bad knock but all the talks coming out of camp was that he led the defensive um, meeting the following Tuesday. It would have been very easy and maybe in the past and I'll be honest selfishly myself I would come away from it and go look I need to make sure I'm okay and so I need to work on my rehab and make sure I'm ready to go whereas this group of players are selfless for each other. And you would have, in your own time, for instance, you've been perhaps resentful isn't too strong a word, say where Malcolm O'Kelly was the person in possession of the yeah. jersey. You were not happy. 
No, no, of course. And there was like there was plenty of times. Now, it was a little bit different as well. I knew I was trying to compete with someone like Malcolm O'Kelly, whose ability was far greater than mine. So my I had to probably bring it to a bit of a battle of work rate. And I knew if I had to compete with someone as talented as him, I'd have to outwork him. Um, but yeah, th- there would have been that kind of mindset. I know it sounds awful, but we've come an awful long way as opposed to kind of locking horns and going at each other. They now help each other. They know that, you know, it's the, you know, the rising tide. Could you have fitted into the current setup then? Um, I don't think I could have fitted in in the current setup in terms of talent and ability. They, it, they genuinely are at a different level. The athletes we're seeing now, the footwork into contact, the, the skill level and even just... Um, Physical conditioning, the strength and conditioning, these are explosive power athletes. And I'll be honest, we used to slag about it. I had about four fast twitch fibres and I used them up uh, before the end of September every year. They were gone. Um, What I would have loved... Sorry, just explain what that means, four fast twitch fibres. I'm only nearly slagging, but I wasn't a fast twitch athlete. I wasn't a power and explosive athlete. And that's what we're seeing across the the board now. I look at the likes of Ryan Beard, Ty Byrne and uh, um, James Ryan who are now playing in that position. They're like, they're like back rows and their, their ability to do more than what's required when I was playing in that role has gone through the roof. M- my role was work rate and probably leaving it to someone else. But that, that's a minimum requirement to be in the team nowadays. They're just incredible athletes. I would have loved to be involved with it in the type of coaching and the structures that are going on around it now, the process of thinking. Looking from afar and back into it now, we, we were nearly gathering data, our group, you know what I mean, to how to correctly train. There was times we would stay out on the pitch maybe over two hours. When modern science now tells you it's crazy, even at the very start we were training like endurance athletes. It's not the way to train. Uh, the big measurement is repeated high intensity efforts. Can two of us wrestle? Can we take a collision? And then can we burst into an explosive effort or a sprint that's the game of rugby and, and we know now how to measure You in your day you had to be warned off overtraining, didn't you? Y- yeah I did I suppose it was probably a thing that like I was saying to you there I knew I wasn't as talented as the people in my room so where I had to max out was making sure I got I'm not chatting about just a little bit ahead. I had to be miles ahead of um, my opposition and even my teammates in what I and we used to call the the areas that take no talent, the, the like the things that get measured that probably people don't see. And um, explain that a bit more. I mean, yeah, what, what kind like, of thing are you talking about? They're, they're small things, Sean. But like no one, when we start rugby now, everyone starts it and you see how much media work goes in around it. But the, it's always on how many ball carries you made, how many uh, tackles you made, how many metres after contact. But no one gives a stat for how quickly you probably got off the ground and got in the defensive line or how you ran back in a kick chase battle to to block an opposition player getting a clean break at your 15. So I knew quite early in my team that I had that role of kind of, uh, of graft. 
just getting your head down. Yeah, on that one, Donica, um, there's a fascinating uh, passage, one of many, in your autobiography, which admittedly now I think has been published uh, all of 12 years ago. <laughs> That's so a lot, right, a lot, I know. Yeah, a lot yeah. has happened since. But you quoted Ian McGeegan, the head of Alliance Tour. He was manager, you were, on the, you were in the squad, and I think you captained him at one stage yeah. as well. But he said... Donica, we need you to carry more ball. And you were you were full of joy, you were overjoyed to hear that because he said for years, Eddie, that would be Eddie O'Sullivan, gave the impression that he'd have put me in oven mitts if it made sure I couldn't carry a ball. None of my coaches ever encouraged me to be a ball carrier. Yeah, and probably I would have, uh, yeah, the, it, it's really interesting. And then uh, when I was working with Ian McGeekin, is at Lions level and you can't hide behind anything else than having I have a better way of describing it but the whole toolbox if you go to the Lions you need to be able to do it all you need to be able to catch pass you need to execute and you need to have work rate and I remember him being really honest he was there like we're, we're looking at test match animals and if you want to be in that mind frame I need, I need you to be good on all the areas. And that was probably a weakness of mine or probably an area that I hid behind because I knew the team needed me with Ireland to probably uh, just get to the graft. But then you can easily hide about, behind it yeah, but and not develop. You, when you say none of my coaches ever encouraged me to be a ball carrier and then to be frank, it's the only enjoyable part of the game. Well, it, it's it's funny, Sean. I'm helping out with the Corcon under eights and the bit every kid loves getting the ball in their hand that's why you play the game get the ball run kick it pass it that's the fun part and I I came into an Irish setup. what we did have was really good ball carriers and Eddie O'Sullivan identified that quite early and in fact he he, um, I, I feel he helped my game because he knew the area that you're not as talented as everyone else in the skill level but you can max out in, in the donkey work I can't find a better phrase for it but I do remember we were in uh, we were in Australia one um, one summer before a World Cup and um, designated ball carriers came in so Eddie O'Sullivan made designated ball carriers within our pack so only two people could carry the ball within our pack which when you look at it now seems bizarre but at the time it just gave real clarity for who should carry the ball so in, in the the team that went out it was Keith Wood and Paul O'Connell but I was subbing at the time so when I came in it was Marcus Horn and Victor Costello but we were training one day and Marcus Horn was held down it, the lads messing and trying to keep him out of it so me thinking I'm being a good team player I ran around the corner and carried the ball and I'll never forget it because Eddie O'Sullivan blew the whistle straight away and I thought I honestly thought John he was going to come over and say that's the attitude we need. You know what I mean? Marcus is out of the game and you step up. And I'll never forget it. He used to keep his notes in a roll in, in his hip and he took out, he took it out and he just started slapping me with it. He was there, what are you doing? And I was there, Marcus is in the ground over there. I stepped up for us. He was there, I don't care if Marcus is in Timbuktu. You are not a designated ball carrier. Stay away from the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was clear to me that that was the kind of role and then I just learned I learned how to adapt a different way but that's what I'm probably saying the difference within this Irish team is now they have 
all the skill set. Yeah, and but do you think you could have made it into that squad, into that team on the basis of your donkey work? Uh, I honestly think it's the minimum requirement now. And, and I'm actually, I know this sounds a bit boastful, but I'm glad that I was uh, with that group of players that probably changed the mindset of that, that you have to, you have to graft. Whereas now we're seeing, like Sean, I'm not being harsh, but if if I played a poor game or in our time if we played a poor game there wasn't as much competition for places as there is now there is so many players vying for position whereas if I played a poor game there was probably myself Malcolm O'Kelly you know Mick O'Driscoll there was only a depth of maybe three whereas now there's a depth chart of loads Yeah and when you think of the fact that we've won two back to back uh, under 20 yeah. uh, Grand Slams there must be people or would there be people in the current senior squad or in the in that panel who'd be maybe looking over their shoulder at some of the younger guys yeah hundred percent but what I've probably learned about this Irish team is that they're looking to give a helping hand now as opposed to maybe holding them back which we would have done you I, had I, your I, own experience of that say particularly in Munster <laughs> with fellas like uh, uh, Golov yeah Mick Galway but I'll never forget it and I loved him for it but I would ask Mick Galway for a, a rep is to get a go at doing one of the, 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 the phases of training and Mick was great for giving me that yeah next one I'll tag in yeah next one I'll tag in yeah next one and then all of a sudden the session was be over you know so but it, it actually made me realise when I got in that you have a respect to the jersey to make it hard to make it really hard for the next person to, to, to get an opportunity but Sean we're going back to it things have changed now we have the Irish 20s in, in break weeks they train with the Irish senior squad so they get full access they get to run against the lads um, you hear of all the academies now before they were all kept in different areas and had different training times I know that's certainly not the case in Munster anymore academy players have exposure to the senior players within first training sessions so I'm just using an example Some a young developing player like Craig Casey well everyone sees him coming through at the moment but he's been training with Conor Murray for the last three to four years so he knows what good is day in day out so it, it, I, I'm glad to see that change in my mindset I'm kind of half embarrassed in ways that we were a little bit selfish and greedy but being ruthlessly honest, I, w- I wouldn't have survived any other way and I'm kind of glad I was like that. Earlier in the year, uh, it looked like uh, Munster rugby was somewhat in the doldrums and then all of a sudden last weekend, they put one over on Leinster. Was it their first victory in about seven or eight games in, in the Aviva against yeah. Leinster? So where does that, what's the state of the parties now? Yeah, I suppose it, it was uh, an incredible performance, Sean, and it just shows probably the character of that squad uh, what probably blew me away about it was like the, the kind of mantra around Munster always is you know to the brave and faithful and he, uh, there's no doubt in teams in the past have been unbelievably faithful but it's the, it, for me it's been the bravest performance by a Munster team I can ever remember I, I can't believe what they've done over the last few weeks. If you think about it, heading over to South Africa, uh, playing the Stormers over there, who 
who no one had beaten in kind of over two years at home and getting that result and then just momentum starts to build up over to Glasgow and and win a, a, a quarter final in the URC that like Glasgow's such a tough place to go there's bad blood between the teams but this this squad have you know what I mean gel together and come together and of course the players deserve a massive amount of credit uh, just how much they've involved I I always look at it Sean are you are you coachable you know what I mean can you be influenced by outside to you know what I mean stretch yourself and I look at some of the players from Munster over the last few years compared to how they're performing now and for me I don't mind saying it but John Klein he, his performance under, for Graham Rowntree has been incredible how, how he's evolved his game moved on and I suppose that's what you want as a player Yeah but the other point that might be made is were they a bit lucky in that Leo Cullen didn't send out a full strength team looking ahead now to yeah. uh, playing Saturday against La Rochelle of course but they, I suppose that that's the position Leinster have put themselves in with trying to manage a squad while also compete on two fronts which regardless of the sport Sean you'll know it doing doubles like look at soccer there look at Man City trying to do you know Champions League and win a league it's difficult to do and I actually think people are being a little bit harsh on Leinster as a result because it's the right way to do it if you want to try to probably win silverware but also if you want to keep your squad happy you have to but like Munster could only play the team put in front of them but when you consider the performance from the Leinster lads as well like I was looking at the stats Josh van der Fleer world player of the year comes on after a minute and makes 28 tackles you know what I mean there is no doubt in the class in that but I uh, I, can I go back to the brave side of it like before we would have always taken our points you know what I mean 3-6-9 I can hear it that's how we always went about it 3-6-9 scoreboard ticking over this Munster team were putting it in the corner and I was like what are they at but uh, just getting a result of course um, look Every Munster supporter, every Munster player would rather be yeah. in Leinster's position going into Champions Cup this weekend. Would it not be true to say that there had been a bit of a fall off in belief in the project, belief in the team, levels of support and so forth? It's a far cry from maybe the previous times when Munster won the Heineken Cup for the first time and I can still hear the Michael yeah. Corcoran commentary. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, that you know you're not quite back to those levels um, I, I'd say I'll be honest with you I don't think it's far off it I, I it just purely because of the way the team's playing and it, the type of rugby we're playing Munster supporters will uh, this match Sean I believe all they all ever want is you to reflect where you're from and, and leave everything but out there here's another consideration and this is a theory it might be off the wall but I heard yeah. it from a good Limerick man recently okay. that enthusiasm Enthusiasm for rugby in Limerick has been somehow blunted by the success of hurling in Limerick and the GA and particularly hurling, Limerick hurling has gone after big strong fellas who can be coached in hurling and, yeah. they, and they are on a big up now they've had success they're enjoying success right now that they would have only dreamed of yeah, 10 of years ago and, and look I'll be honest with you that's that's something I'm actually massively proud about and slag some of my... Like, any time I chat to Ugo Mania, I'm there like, Oogs, uh, we, are, we are the world's best team at rugby and it's our fourth choice sport. Like, I'll never forget, uh, we got a strength and conditioning coach over Damien Mendes. He came in first and he started putting us through these... Uh, the big thing at the time, Sean, was speed, agility and quickness. And he put us through the drills and he couldn't believe how bad we were. And tomorrow 
Thomas O'Leary jumped in and he had just won a minor All-Ireland with Cork and he went through the drill and he was there, why, why can't you all move like that? And we were like, that's Shawnee O'Leary's young fella. You know what I mean? He, and mm-hmm. he was there, why is he different? And we were there, he's hurled all his life. And he was there like, that's, get me those, get me those athletes. But unfortunately for... Irish rugby, well, it's a good way. Like, yeah, but they're sticking with the hurling now. You can't 100%. pick them off now for, yeah. for, for rugby in Limerick. Yeah, of course. But that, like, I'll be honest, that's the competition pool. And I don't think we fall to see. I think there is, you know, everyone's fighting to get players on the pitch. But I do think, um, you know, like I was massively proud. I know this one's uh, like, but Munster in that performance had 20 two players that were Irish qualified and, and and the other one was Ben Healy who's from you know I mean Tipperary and playing mm-hmm. for Scotland all the rest are Irish qualified 19 of them have come through the, the pathway or the academy set up uh, so I think Graham Rowntree has done a brilliant job of putting us yeah. back to North But can you still compete or okay you had the great win last, yeah. last Saturday but uh, you know, is 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 it a level playing field, field as it were, between Munster and Leinster? Or are Leinster so far ahead in terms of resources, personnel, and all that? Yeah, of course. Like you'd look at the academies, some you'd look at the finances, stuff like that. But Sean, I'd be honest. I think that can be an excuse sometimes. You know what I mean? Like you have to find a way. And I think what that team showed is they found a way. I, I'd agree with you. You look what was in the stand for Leinster, it can blow anyone away. But that's because I, I, that's why they're at the top end of it. Like they'll go up against La Rochelle this weekend and, and they're another big budget team. So like say what you want and we can hope for heart and spirit and you know what I mean? The beautiful oh. sides of rugby. But... Budget matters, money matters, playing pools matter. Hand, and on, hand on heart, Donald Callahan, yeah. as an old fellow <laughs> crossman yeah. and close friend of Raj, is there a bit of you that's hoping that La Rochelle win on Saturday? If La Rochelle won, I'd be delighted for him, but I learned my lesson. I, You know what I mean? I would never... I would never cheer for a, a French team or, or an English team or a Welsh team over the Irish one. But it's a bit like the dubs in, 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 in Gaelic football. Yeah. I mean, they, they are brilliant, but everybody else outside Dublin likes to see them. Yeah. See them lose, you know. Of course, but I'd like to see them lose to Connacht or you know <laughs> Munster, maybe not Ulster, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I, I won't be cheering for Leinster. I hope they win. Uh, but if, like, to answer your question, if if Rod was to get a result, of course I'd be delighted for him. You know what I mean? I, I get a giggle, Sean, that everyone's really surprised that Rod is a good coach, and I, like since the age of eighteen, he's been coaching us. You know what I mean? That moment behind the goal in the Grand Slam game in Wales Raj Raj was coaching there like I remember that I'll never forget that moment because all of us started looking at our boots it was over game was over and he just straight away went through roles okay we're going to win this game I'll never forget it. we're going to win this game and this is what we need to do he's going to he named it where we were kicking it and he pointed to me and Paul O'Connell he was there I need the ball back and then we had this kind of pattern that got into a, a bit of a zigzag pattern so he pointed to the relevant players that were needed to do that and then he was there and then I'll be in the pocket, lads, and we're going to get a chance and we're going to win this game. You and are, that is a magnificent story. I can feel the hairs in the back of my neck <laughs> rising as you tell that. I mean, you've brought us right back into the thick of it. Yeah, but do you know what, Sean? All the rest of us rang the bell. You know what I mean? I'll be honest with you. I was looking at my laces kind of going, it's over. We came so close again. Whereas Rog, 
he like he broke it down into little bits and I'll never forget it going up for he was there, do you know what you have to do? I was there, I have to get the ball back at the kickoff and then get into that shape. And he's there, good man, you know what I mean? And it was so composed. Whereas now all of a sudden everyone's there, Gee, Ron O'Gar is really good at coaching and you're there like you know, like yeah, you know, why is this a why is this a massive surprise? And of course, look, he'll bring something. And look, Donica Ryan's there as well. Uh, Sean Dougal's involved, and Alton Delan, you know, like who played with Connacht from years and for Trilly. So there is. I'm quite proud that there's Irish influences within it, but of course, I want the Irish team to to go well as well. Sean, for me, it's important if we keep setting the benchmark if the competition is within Ireland rather than France or England or Wales the standard will come up for all of us You uh, did a wonderful take off of Eddie O'Sullivan there a few (laughs) minutes ago and I want you to talk about the various coaches that you worked with Uh, I'm thinking primarily of Eddie O'Sullivan uh, Declan Kidney Mm. and also uh, Joe Schmidt there are probably others that you would want to mention as well but uh, and you said you learned from Eddie O'Sullivan but he wasn't somebody that you would have found it easy to get on with No and that's what I actually liked about Eddie O'Sullivan I actually loved that about him he didn't and this sounds quite coarse and harsh but he didn't care about my family he didn't care about care about Jenny and my girlfriends and stuff he cared about me between the white lines go out I'll give you the game plan I'll give you all the coaching perform it and, and he, like small talk fair enough but he wasn't into that side of it and I actually I really admired that I really liked it but I, I mean you were in a lift with him once weren't yeah, you yeah yeah I was in a lift with him once my, one of my very first times uh, with Eddie and uh, I remember I got in and I just tried to to make a little bit of small talk I was there geez, uh, it the the weather's brutal, isn't it? And he just honestly pressed button three to the floor he was getting and didn't even acknowledge it. Absolutely no time for small talk. So um, do you know what? Doing a little bit of punditry with him now and having a bit of maturity as well, I know that I should be laughing in those situations, but I was kind of fearful. You know, Because he had a turn of phrase, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he had brilliant lines. Like I, The one I'll never forget, we played uh, Wales in the Millennium Stadium. And stupidly, I, like, Sean, I have no pace. If we started on the line now, I, I'd say there's a 50-50 chance to be a good 100 metres sprint between the two of us who come out on top. <laughs> You're so encouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I don't have any... But uh, Shane Williams, one of the greatest wingers to ever play the game for Wales, just broke all the rules in terms of always looking to avoid contact and eat great feet. Um, but uh, there was one time in a video review, um, Eddie put the red dot on me. The red dot is bad news. It's basically he's highlighting you. Stupidly, in the middle of this match, Sean, I gave Shane Williams the outside. So basically, it is when you give a player your outside shoulder, you're kind of saying to him, I know I'm fast enough to track you down, which I was nowhere close to with uh, Shane Williams. And I'll never forget it. Eddie O'Sullivan put the dot on me and he was like, Donners, Donners, what are you doing here? And I was there. Um, I, I honestly don't know what I'm doing, Eddie. And he's there. Listen to me here. If you give Shane Williams the outside, you wouldn't catch him on a Kawasaki 180. <laughs> 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 he was there like, there's no chance of you being able to catch up with him. So, yeah, um, things like that. He he had great ones. You're about as useful as a chocolate fire guard, an ashtray on the uh, motorbike, all different things. Yeah, and um, then you had Declan Kidney. Started with Monster, then became Eddie's assistant. Assistant, uh, and then somehow managed to take yeah. over. Yeah, what was what was it like working with him? Do you know what? In hindsight, 
um, I was probably really tough on Declan and what I actually didn't realise was Decky had more interest in shaping us as men as rugby players I'm unbelievably thankful to Declan Kidney now that I can see what he did for me in terms of a person Decky cared about us you know what I mean 100% they're probably technically way better coaches out there but to get a beat out of you there was no one better because he knew you inside out. He knew he could. He was like a counselor at times. You know, like we 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 used to slag about it, but like the worst thing you could say to Declan Kidney when he asked you, is, "How are you?" If you said fine, you, you weren't getting out of there for at least thirty minutes because he would keep going, and he he genuinely cared so much. Total contrast with Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the absolute opposite in in terms of. Um, I'll never forget going into him one time we're coming into a European Cup semi-final and I wanted to be really clear with him Sean what he needed out of me for the weekend and I remember he he sat me down he was there what are you doing on Monday morning and I was like what are you on about what am I doing on Monday morning like who cares about Monday morning it's all about Saturday and he was in a roundabout way he was making the point that I was too far in with nothing else going on outside my life by rugby and if Saturday didn't go well, it was going to fall down. Even general conversations, like I know this sounds crazy, but I remember he he would say to me, you're going out with Jenny now for five to six years. You know, what are you thinking here? You know what I mean? And But I know, like I would go back to my teammates in the dressing room and go, Dickie, like, you know what I mean? On to me about Jenny. But now I realise he was nearly a, a guide for us a little bit. And I... I'm so thankful to him. I know this is mad and it seems really weird because I, I was resentful to him when I was playing a bit. I was there, just coach us, just give us unbelievable detail on how to beat every team. Mm. But I realised he gave us a brilliant grounding on, on how you should conduct yourself. And what about Joe Schmidt then? Uh, he started obviously, as we know, with Leinster and then he took on the Ireland job and yeah. you were there. I was there. I only made two camps. I only made two camps under uh, Joe and um, obviously I would have loved to have been involved a little bit more but I was at that dangerous point in my own career where, uh, being completely honest, I wasn't producing it well enough. There was enough young fellas clipping at my heels um, and I'll never forget it. Um, the morning my little girl Robin was born, I got a phone call from Joe Schmidt and everyone had been on and all the Leinster lads had been chatting about his attention to detail. No one, no one's attention to detail is like Joe Schmidt's. And Robin had just been born, say, I'd say about 40 minutes earlier and I saw Joe Schmidt calling and I was like, whoa, look at this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Joe Schmidt's attention to detail and <laughs> it was quite the opposite. He was there, I'm naming a squad at 12 o'clock and you're not in it. You, you, you're done, he's there, look. And he was really clear and I liked him for it. He was there... At the moment, you're not playing enough quality games for me to even judge you. And that's why I'm going to be leaving you out of the squad at the moment. So, um, Sorry, did he tell you this literally within minutes of your daughter being yeah, born? Yeah, I'd say about maybe 40 minutes. Yeah, but that's, that's the ruthless side of the game and, and, and the bits people don't see. And it's actually something we love joking about. Like, how did you get uh, the shepherd's hook? How did you get... Like, Ron O'Gara got uh, dropped one time from the Irish squad by Declan Kidney inside in Cork Opera House at the Gruffalo. Do you know the kids' book, The Gruffalo? He's in, like, at the Gruffalo, and there's a phone call from Declan Kidney, as uh, you know. But at least I suppose he told you. 
100%. And all, Sean, I know this sounds crazy, but all you want is the truth. You don't want to hear, you don't want to hear the, the slap on the back. You just want to hear, boom, give it to me straight on the line. So what about Andy Farrell now? He took over from Joe Schmidt. Uh, from I, I know you're not part of it, but you do have your contact yeah. still. What's his style? What do you know about that? Yeah, I, I think one, you just look at what he's brought around him. And I've always felt that, you know, incredible leaders surround themselves with other incredible leaders. And um, from my playing days with Paul O'Connell, Simon Easterby, John Fogarty and going up against Mike Cash, they, I, I know those men. They are confrontational. They will question everything and they will ask difficult questions. And I, I look at it now and I think there there's a different mindset in, in terms of, and I honestly fully believe the coaching ticket isn't getting enough praise. They really have, for what they've done and what they've, allow these players to express themselves. Of them all, of those people you mentioned, Paul O'Connell is the one obviously you would know best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. After, Sean, you said it a few times there, I carried him for close on 20 years, so uh, I'm money slagging, I'm money slagging. <laughs> no, I would know him best. I would know him best. He, um, an incredible guy in in, in terms of, uh, like I said again, but we were chatting about that team and what I didn't realise, I, I, when I was playing with him, I thought he's a great player and, and what I know no is he's a great man like O'Connell has values he has uh, characteristics that that I pray my kids have such as ah, he's honest he's hard working he's so caring he would have your back right or wrong a a loyalty that's probably blinded um, through maybe earning it he's also got something I haven't seen in since I've been in the dressing room with him, he is inspirational, and it's very hard to to put your finger on h- how he is so inspirational. It's just being around him and around his. It makes you better. You you, you perform better around him. The, the biggest example I always give is when Paul walked into the room. The, the, honestly, this the room changed, and Nora changed around the room. I know you might slag about it, but it, it did when. When Paulie was on it, he could get us to walk on glass because we know he'd be first there. And you go back, I think, to playing at under-20 level with him. He from Limerick, you from Cork. But you became very close friends. Um, I mean, did you did you need each other, you know, as, as, as teammates there in the second row? Yeah, I suppose second row and probably centres are the positions where combinations work best if you know what I mean if you can if you can hit a combination I, I look at the English setup at the moment and everyone is given Maro Atoji an, an awful time they're saying he's underperforming but I, I actually don't think that second pairing has clicked, cl- clicked what you need is balance you need you need to complement each other in those positions and I think Quite early on, we identified that within each other, the areas that probably suited each other. And then this is a bit wild, but we actually competed the whole time. We, I was never worried about any other second row on the pitch bar trying to beat everything that Paul did. So we would have this kind of healthy respect that we would try to 
outwork each other. Try and, and that that was contagious all week. It's, Which of you is the more competitive? Oh, he he is the most competitive man I, I've ever come across on everything. In fact, we used to wind him up. We would make up silly, um, like Stephen Ferris. Young, well, Stephen Ferris was young when he came into our squad. But I don't know. Do you know this? There's a game called Bop It. Uh, it was around our team room. So basically, there's four different action, five different actions. You can twist it, spin it, flick it, or bop it on this device. But uh, we made up that Stephen Ferris had the the record in this. You know what I mean? No one could beat Stephen Ferris. He'd got over <laughs> two hundred or whatever the score was. But I'll never forget O'Connell sitting there for hours with this bop at toy until he beat it. You know what I mean? He he could not not be the best at it. And look, we were lucky to have that because that was the drive for all of us. And to be fair, we were able to knock a bit of fun out of it as well. Going back to, to your relationship with coaches, you said uh, in your autobiography, the coaches like the bit of madness in me and wanted me to bring it onto the field, but to control it. Um, but then you admit later, I continued to get in my own way. So yeah. there were discipline issues. Uh, did you ever f- feel that you had finally addressed that? Um, yeah, I, I suppose at points in my career, what a brilliant thing for me, Sean, was actually going and playing in England because I was always with a dominant team. My team in Munster, physically, and, and with that pack we had, we always we were always able to probably uh, physically take the upper hand in games. And it wasn't until I probably went over to Worcester that I realised we hadn't got that. Uh, But little things that you can't control, uh, you have to probably leave them off. And that was something I didn't understand when I was probably with a, a, a dominant pack. I probably got frustrated that you know, why isn't this going our way and we'll probably get a little bit more um, animated and as well I, I know this sounds crazy but I'll never forget because I, I was giving away an awful lot of penalties at a point I remember sitting down with Dave McHugh who would have been an international referee and I said to him Dave I need to um, I need to get better at, you know what I mean I have to have a better working relationship with the referees and he was there I can tell you one thing that would really help and I was there what? he was there saying hello when they come into the dressing room. He's there, I see you in the dressing room when I've refed you before. And he's there, you honestly look half-possessed. Like he, <laughs> he, but it was just a, a small thing. He was there, you have headphones in, you look so pumped, you look so... And he was there, I, I, from a referee's point of view, I'm just looking at you kind of going, this guy, he's, he's over the top today. And they just make a perception. And it was a real small thing, but it actually helped that I was able to go over to referees before games and just kind of, hi, how's it going, hop the ball. So the dog had got a bad name. So yeah. this was part of, <laughs> of redressing it. Yeah, a little bit. And of course, look, knowledge helps. You know what I mean? Mm. Knowing the areas, what, what was really helpful with video analysis, you were able to realise referees hot penalties. So you, uh, this is probably under Eddie and, and Declan. They would spend an awful lot of time uh, identifying areas that this referee is really hot on. And, and then I would make it every bit my business to not get caught on probably their biggest areas so certain refs offside in the midfield I remember actually saying to myself I know with this referee I'm going to be a, f- a yard behind because I can't take the risk Playing in the position you did and also being discouraged if not banned from carrying the ball <laughs> I mean it was a really really tough station I'm not suggesting that yeah. there are any stations in a, on a rugby team that aren't but 
How much were you prepared for that by just the fact, for instance, that you, you had a you had a tough upbringing? You lost your dad at the age of of six. Yeah. Uh, your mother had, I think, was it four sons and a daughter? Yeah, that's it. To rare and not a whole lot of money. No, it wasn't. It was it was it was tough. I suppose I I don't really make the cross between rugby and us kind of growing up like that. We, I'll be honest with you, Sean, we knew no different. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but what I know now is I've been a dad of four kids myself. My mom had five widowed at 36 years of age. I, I don't know how she did it. I genuinely, being a dad now myself, I, I just see it with my own kids. My mom never faltered. She never looked weak. And... She she kind of instilled this kind of belief in us that one the 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 comfort to know we were going to be okay. He, uh, I'll never forget that my mom. I was six years of age, and she said, "We're going to be fine. We're going to drive on." But we, she brought this kind of maybe a relentless edge that we had to get out and push ourselves a little bit more than probably would have been the case. And, and I think was it your eldest brother, Eddie, left school early to just get a job to get some income for the family. I mean, that was just what had to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you look at it, the 80s were a tough time. My dad was a plasterer by trade. Um, and not only did my mom have to make sacrifices, but my my brothers who were teenagers at the time had to turn into men. They instantly had to to actually take up that role of providing and looking out for us. And Eddie, my eldest brother, was first to do that. He went straight out and, and, and started his trade as a plaster. But I would remember my brother coming home with, um, you know, the small little brown pay, slip, pay packs. I, I do indeed. I got I used to get a few of them down in the Irish press <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> many years ago. But I remember him just handing it over, walking in the door on a Friday and handing it over. You know what I mean, and 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 no question at all about doing it. And I suppose I was lucky. You know, there's a ten year gap between me and and Eddie, and we were kind of nearly a little bit protected. You know, because we were a little bit younger. That you know they they made their sacrifices. Yeah. And then there was your other brother, Emmett, uh, I think, who ran a, a business uh, in the construction area as well. You went to work for him uh, in, yeah. in, in the summer. Yeah, he was a plasterer again by trade. All three of my brothers eventually got as far as their junior shirt and went straight into trades as a result of probably needing the family's need. Uh, and I worked with Emmett. I laboured for him for a summer. And I'll never. it was the greatest lesson I ever got, Sean. It really was because... I, one summer there, I knew I never wanted to work this hard again. Like, I know this sounds nuts, but it, it working on site uh, wasn't for me. You know what I mean? And I, I'll be honest, it probably got me ready for a dressing room. That type of the mentality, the crack around the place, but also you have to you have to fight your corner on a site. You know, like I'll never forget small little things, but I used to have to do the run for lunch because I was a labourer. So head down and get either pies, sausage rolls, cigarettes, and the nightmare of trying to calculate all the change. And I'm telling you, be five pence out. or You know what I mean? And fellas would go crazy. And you're like, whoa. And then even other small little things. I remember they made a point of, my, and my brother stirring all of it, Emmett, who's a fair bit of a messer, to be fair with him. He he would take offence that tradesmen wouldn't have to sit with labourers. You know what I mean? And he, an awful lot of... Uh, that vintage would have been of that mindset. Um, you know, he would have 
my brother at the time Emmett was working with tradesmen that would have worked with my dad so pr- trying to keep that tradition I'm there Who, what are you at like you know what I mean Just and th- there was an incident with a bicycle as well wasn't yeah. there <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was. So basically, I got paid uh, forty pounds a week. I'll never forget it. So that's what I got off Emmett. It was seven to seven. He was working for himself, and I'd labour f- for them. But I remember I saved up to a point where I bought a bike, and Emmett was probably looking for more kudos about me buying the bike. He was there, like you got the bike as a result of me paying you, and I was there. I got the bike from working my ass off for you, and he was there. Well, you know, you need to be more appreciative, and I was. A young age teenager myself I was there you can jog on and he was there okay fair enough if you like that bike that much you can cycle to work every day so we would I would have to get up earlier to cycle to work and and all the time we were out in Ballancolic on site at the time I would always hear him beep as he passed me and just the finger out the window hey <laughs> so uh, when I read that I, I couldn't but conclude what a bollocks <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, he, he, I know this sounds nuts, but he gave me an unbelievable grounding, like, in, in terms of... Was it good for you in the end? Yeah, yeah. Like, I could have gone two ways with my family. Like, I, by temperament, I'm a little bit softer and gentler than those lads. And they knew, like, we haven't dad at home here. So we need to keep him, you know what I mean, on the straight and narrow and, and just make sure that he's... I, I don't want to say tough, but resilient mm. is what they, they they wanted. And was it one of them that basically persuaded you not not to drink, not to not to take alcohol? Yeah, um, being honest about it, my two eldest brothers, Eddie and Alton, when they were quite young, they were collecting glasses in the local pub, and they would have seen the way you know the local pub. You you actually get to see an awful lot of your neighbours, your friends, and family how they conduct themselves around it. And I'll never forget the two of them at, at certain points. Yeah, the 80s in Ireland decided they weren't going to drink. They didn't like the way it changed people's behaviours or how people conducted themselves on it. Now, Emmett was fond of having a few drinks and I would then have two perfect examples. I would have the two lads uh, setting an unbelievable example and I'd wake up to see Emmett asleep in the front garden. You know what I mean? And I was thinking, yeah, which way would I go with this? So um, I, I kind of chose to follow my two oldest brothers who didn't have a drink. But in, in, in a mad way, it ended up for our time in rugby becoming really important. You know, the, like uh, rugby was still very social when we were playing it. Having drinks after games was part for the course and that was something I mean I remember as a, as a young journalist in this town uh, seeing guys piling out of uh, I don't know whose pub were piling in some of the rugby teams after those uh, international games and they probably gave it socks as we'd yeah. say but has that has that approach to life okay they probably have a blowout after the end of a season or something yeah. like that but I mean was that discipline was that something that completely changed yeah it has 100% and I even saw it changing and I, I I know this sounds a little bit mad but I was probably one of the people involved in, in helping a change but it flipped both sides as well we um, we seriously underperformed in the World Cup in 2007 in France but I'll never forget one of my... I remember going to Eddie O'Sullivan and being like, Eddie, we need a blowout here. We need the lads to actually go and relax and 
we actually need to have a few points. And that was the time we were staying, I think, in a hotel close to a motorway or something. Yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We weren't. Yeah, it wasn't ideal setup for it. But I, I suppose you'd have a gauge for how useful it is as well in terms of team bonding and stuff. Now, sports science has changed, and you, you're right. They pick their dates now, and they go and they enjoy it. And as well, there's everything around to aid the recovery of different things but it was probably a different mindset back then and uh, we were lucky enough myself and Paul O'Connell were lucky enough to meet Moss Keane before he passed away we got to have dinner with him on a Tuesday night before we played South Africa and I'll never forget we sat down for dinner and we were ordering ordering drinks and we said I'll have a seven up and I'll have an orange and his jaw nearly hit the ground he was there lads would you not have a point and we were there we we won't Moss we have the match and he was there the match is on Saturday it's it's Tuesday and then just listening to the stories of the times they had where they would they would have a few points the night before a match to settle your nerve and it just it just seems so different you know different times um one of the great moments, I suppose, in your career was uh, playing in Croke Park. Uh, yeah. Now, you, you said m- m- on many occasions you were useless at hurling or football. <laughs> I have a funny feeling you would have met a great full forward. <laughs> you could have been that. in the bomber Liston category, you know, just lamp it into him and he'd yeah, do the yeah. rest. But leaving that aside, you were there playing for Ireland and against France. You played against other countries. You played against England as well. Is that the one that would have most memories for you? Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's... Um it's one of those ones that you are so proud that you were involved in. It was an occasion like nothing else. But, Sean, I know this might sound a bit arrogant, but I felt that was a massive moment for nearly the whole country. I think there was a maturity of the nation at that moment as well. I think all of us were worried how would the national anthems be respected. But I think, you know, I'll never forget the English national anthem playing and being able to hear Danny Grucock. I'd, I'd been on a, um, I'd been on a Lions tour with him, and I could hear his voice. And we were there in front of eighty four thousand, and you couldn't hear anyone else. I couldn't hear anyone else, bar Danny Grucock and um, Phil Vickery. But you'd got your instructions as to how that game should go. I think was it from your grandmother? Yeah, I did. Yeah, my nan would have been. Um, my nan wasn't into rugby and honestly Sean she felt sorry for us that we were were good at rugby basically in Cork at that time if you played rugby it meant you were terrible at hurling and football so you had to find something else to do so my nan was a massive St Michael's fan when it came to uh, to and and the Rockies the Rockies meant everything to her but she'd go down to play bingo in the Rockies every Tuesday night and I'll never forget before the Crow Park match, she would never ring me like about rugby. There was times I she'd I'd have a chat and she'd say, Have you, what are you doing this weekend? I'd say, I'm in Wales. We have a big game in the Millennium Stadium. We're playing Brits in the European Cup final. She'd have no interest, wouldn't even know what's going on. But she rang me before that one and she was there. I won't be able to walk into the Rockies if you don't get this result. Losing to England and Crowbark was unthinkable. And of course, I laughed and joke about it, but she was like, put me on to Ron O'Gara. Like she wanted to do the rounds of the room, leaving everyone know that this was beyond a game. So Rod got it as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were roomies and she knew that she could. Same stringer got it all off my nan. Yeah. But one of the great things, and hindsight again, like. Brian O'Driscoll's leadership that week was incredible. All week he pre- prepared us. It's another big game. It's another big game. 
and it, that, it was brilliant to kind of push it down the track but I'll never forget his last team huddle before we walked out the door and he, he just was so honest he was there if you think it's another match you're joking now they weren't the exact words he was there this will be remembered lads this is and it was it was so good that he came clean you know what I mean that they, it, like all of a sudden we were there fair play you minded us all week but you 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 showed the honesty of effort walking out the door to leave us in no doubt that we have to deliver and he, he played it at the right time and to be fair, I'll never forget him. We went a few scores clear and he was there. It's not enough. He's ruthless edge to make sure that that game, like we actually ran out of time in that match as opposed to got the result. It, it, like it was, it was beyond sport for me in terms of what we had to do. A fantastic memory, a fantastic achievement, I suppose. People remember as well, the tears running down. I think it was yeah. John Hayes' face. John Hayes, yeah, absolutely. And, I suppose it was the emotion of all of it and there is like there is very few times you get to show what something means to you and that was an unbelievable moment of just showing how proud you were to be Irish and I I, I know people can look at those moments and say you're overly arose and stuff like that but Sean, the game that we play it does involve physical contact and sometimes you need more than just knowing that you're good enough you need you need a cause you need and we knew we were no doubt that day that how big that match was and you spent uh, you mentioned it earlier I think you spent three years uh, with Worcester Warriors uh, at towards the end of your career that's where, where you finished up and then you've made the transition to, to broadcasting uh, on television and radio uh, with Ireland's fittest family uh, you do 2FM in the mornings yeah. starting at 6am I mean you must be a glutton for punishment I mean how how does the broadcast thing go for you? Are, you are you satisfied that it's it's giving you the kind of outlet for your talents and you know your, your career plans yeah I am um, I'll be honest talents I think is a bit of a stretch one thing I, I, I made I, I'm quite good for setting goals and I remember I, I, I when I finished up rugby I would always set a bit of a plan for myself and I, I was probably at a crossroads I, I could have easily stayed involved in the game but I was interested to see how far I could push myself on my own. I, I, I was genuinely concerned, can you stand on your own two feet? And I was really lucky through different opportunities. Dan Healy in, in, in 2FM, he honestly, he threw me, it's really harsh, hard, it's really unusual to say, but he, he, he nearly showed a bit of confidence in me. He was there, I... I think you could be good at this and 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 then probably put me in an environment to probably learn and get better and now I, I love I love doing 2FM breakfast I really do I, I don't know am I anywhere near I need to go in terms of but I love doing it I enjoy it I find it I bunks out of the bed to do it Sean and I probably got it to this point where I know I could be doing different things but I like to do stuff I actually love doing and it doesn't feel like it's work and that that's a result of having a, a decent team around us we've a, a good team with Darren and Carl and Grace keeping an eye on us on it but I make loads of mistakes but uh, we, we well, all do yeah, um, yeah and I suppose the question of not getting fixated about them or thinking about and you would have learned this from rugby it's kind of next ball it's next interview it's yeah. next item but John because I, I, I had a fight with actually it was Paul O'Connell over this and I was trying to make the point that this is all games and no training. 
you make your mistakes live. Yeah, like, and uh, people don't respect how much, yeah, how difficult it is. And I'll be honest, I didn't either. I, I genuinely came into a thought. You throw up the mics and you have a laugh. Like you have a brief there in front of you. You've people talking in your ear. Don't be giving my no, secrets away. No, no, don't but, mind. Yeah, but not even that. But like you've, you know, you've times to hit. Mm. There's certain. There is an absolute skill to it, and I think sometimes people can undervalue it and not appreciate it because people other people that have gone before are so good at it and I suppose that's the mark of good environments that you get good people that leave legacy and I suppose one of the things you would have learned from your your time as a professional rugby player was be careful about how you use your 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 resources or your money I mean I think yeah. you've spoken before about investments and you would by no means have been alone in this no, no. That, that, that went belly up I mean yeah. what did you learn from that yeah of course I think from someone like we spoke about with my mom who had to scrap for every every penny uh, I was probably involved with this time of Celtic Tiger where money was so easy to get a hold of and um, it was probably not only I, I think it's a real cop out to say I took bad advice We saw last Friday the four key figures uh, led by Harry Cassidy the boss of Custom House Capital uh, were jailed um, what did you think of that given that you'd lost money via Custom House Capital? I look at that whole scenario and I look at myself in that time and I'll be honest with you I'm more disappointed with myself um, than anything else I should have done more work I should have I should have been more self-aware of not only the 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 type of business and the type of funds I was putting my money in, into but also the character of the people also the people involved in it and I suppose for me it was a massive lesson in terms of a wake-up call. I personally blame no one but myself in terms of and I'm trying to find a better word for it. But yeah, but but you probably had access, I mean, apart from your own knowledge of the ways of the world and also you would have had friends and people you could have had to advise you maybe more, but that wouldn't go for a lot of the, the, the small, if you like, investors, people who put their life savings into it, maybe lump sums from their pensions. You yeah, know? and uh, like, look, I'll be honest with you, Sean, at, at the truth at the time, we were nearly going off the dressing room vibe. These lads were putting it in and I was putting my money where I I didn't have a knowledge. That is something I absolutely would never do anymore. And I suppose, from my point of view, it was a massive wake-up call that you yeah. have to you have to be accountable for your own actions. You but know what I mean? Think, but do you think, Danica, that uh, there's an element of justice now that has been administered? People have gone to jail for their crimes. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, for me, like if you're, like everyone, whatever about being good at your job, you have to be honest and truthful and... Um, I suppose that was the biggest disappointment for me within it. And I like Were I'll you be shocked. Honest, I was yeah, I was I'd be honest, I was pissed off. You know what I mean? Like you think you're you're putting your your money uh, and you're trusting these people, whereas you know, you're right, I was at a younger age and I probably had the time to adapt, but I was also putting money in there at the prime of my career that could have sustained me for you know, if I had been putting it in smarter choices with better people, you know, could have, uh, you know, like, uh, I know it sounds crazy, but we all want to, you know, spend more time with our families and stuff mm. and money allows us to do that. Well, I'll have to graft away for another while. I don't mind doing that. Do, but you, do you want to tell us how much you lost? Um, 
Do you know what, Sean? I, I, I won't say the, the amount, but I was maxing out my pension contribution and I was putting it all in there every time. That's what I was doing. And um, so I was, I was, every year I was putting the max I could. Right. And how many years would that have been? Oh, it would have been over the course of maybe six. Yeah, at least. Ooh. Yeah. So, yeah, look, it's, it's. Did you get point. any of it back? Yes, uh, yeah, we started to get, uh, there's a, a fund of us in there that there was a, co- uh, a, a few amounts that have come back, but nowhere near the, the amount that was put in. Hard lesson. Hard lesson, but uh, honestly, vital, uh, vital for me, you cannot offload responsibility for stuff like that. And I know you need to take expert advice, but you also, I know this sounds mad, John, but in in, in a mad way, I had a gut feeling before it and I wish I backed it. I wish I had, at the, at the time, the RFU had a brilliant policy in place where they would incentivise us. And uh, uh, I think it was like every mon- a bit of money we put into our pension, they would put, I think, 10% on top. And an awful lot of us looked for these smarter ways, whereas um, I, wish, I wish I had questioned not only the the type of funds and asked all those so I, I, I upskilled myself to get educated in them but in the end character tests the people involved and it, like it is another lesson for me in whatever about businesses it's good people you want to be around it's good people you want to back So you talk about wanting to have plans and goals and so forth you're in your early 40s uh, still and you're still active, you're still training, you're still running, all that kind of stuff and you're broadcasting and making a great fist of it. What do you think you'll be doing when you're 50? I don't know. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I wonder, sometimes I wonder, will I go back into the game? But John, you touched on it with my dad. Like I actually, I, I'm 44 now and I actually think I'm four years plus if you know what I mean my dad passed away at 40 and I actually I know you might think oh, he's gone off on one here but I am I kind of and it's not a, but I live in the moment I genuinely do I, I, I have a mindset of how can I get better how can I improve but I I, I don't look I set goals and I set targets but then I, I try to implement how can I action them every day and I love the point I'm at in my life. I know this won't last, but I, the biggest thing, honestly, and I, I know it might sound a little bit corny, but at, at 50, I want my kids to say he was his deadly dad. He was class to hang around with. Well, you know what I mean? He, brilliant, helped us. Well, you know what I mean? It was, it, it, not, crack aside, was, was good. Gave them values and, and stuff that they'll take on forever. So that would what I would see my biggest thing to push on and, and get better at and constantly work on. But in terms of uh, the radio, I know, um, you know, I love doing it. How much more I can keep improving at it. And you know better than anyone else. Like, how how long does it last? How long do you want to keep at it? Sure. And you never know, I mean, what things will turn up or what balls will bounce your way career-wise. Yeah. But look, Donald, it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to you and thank you so much for your time and your energy and all of the great moments as well that you've given, not just the listeners to uh, 2FM, but also the Irish sporting public. Thank you so much. Thanks a million for having me on. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.